Really welcome you. If you've got any uh, questions or comments, please speak to me at the door afterwards. Please do stay and have coffee um, or tea. Uh, just a, a couple of other things. If you are an international student and you've got nowhere to go on Christmas Day, uh, come here to the service and then there will be a Christmas lunch afterwards that uh, Malcolm and Ruth and Friends International are doing. But please do let us know if you intend to come uh, to that You'll also see that these Christmas cards, I do want to encourage you to make use of them. Um, Just pick up half a dozen on the way out, and then you can give them to people uh, during the week. Also, the record is available for this month, and there are some daily breads also available at the back as well, if you um, would like those. And then, um, congratulations to Max Cooter on getting his PhD. And uh, if you want to get your PhD in theology, we have a library through there at the back, and there are books that are there to borrow for free. So a lot of you don't know about that, but please do feel free to make use of it. But we're here to hear God's Word, and we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 4. Over the next three Sundays, I want to do just kind of a mini-series on Paul's understanding of the birth of Jesus, or Paul and the Incarnation. Um, a lot of people think Paul doesn't say much about it, but I think that he does. And we're going to go begin by going to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 23, but we're going to look especially at verses 4 to 7 of chapter 4. So it's on page 1170. I'm going to read from verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come. We are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons, because your sons God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Um, Stephanie, as we go along, maybe you can just follow because there's quite a few slides and um, I'll forget to to click them. But um, I did want to think about what was the message of Christmas. Now, this always happens every year. I got this lovely tract, always beware of envelopes written with red ink or green ink, and this one came with the usual, Um, and it's entitled God Hates Christmas, so it's full of Christmas cheer, as you can imagine. Um, The (laughs) classic lines like, parents place their youngsters in the arms of a fat-bellied Santa, anagram of Satan, who's in the place of God. By so doing, they teach them to accept the lie. That infers Santa is God. Now, um, 
There's lots of things about Christmas that are pretty horrible. Uh, but the, one of the things that's horrible is getting tracks like this. Uh, it's Christmas we celebrate as a Christian holiday. And we celebrate remembering the, the death of Christ. And we know that there are pagan aspects to it. And we know there are many things wrong with it. So that's a bit depressing. Uh, this was also a bit depressing. This was from uh, our local uh, church up, up where we live. And it was a Christmas message. And it says this. Luke tells us that Jesus was born in a Bethlehem stable, and as there was no other place available for the baby, his first cot was a manger or feeding trough. Shepherds from the surrounding hills were summoned by angels to visit him, although shepherds in those days were looked down on because they lived with their animals. The details of the manger and the shepherds highlight Luke's characteristic concern for the poor and the marginalized. All over the world at Christmas, women and men, boys and girls from every background, follow the shepherds and celebrate that baby's birth believing that God is still doing extraordinary things in unexpected places. What's wrong with that? Sounds good. Jesus for the poor and the marginalized. It's useless. You might as well throw it in the fire. It's just a, it's just a collection of words that mean very, very little. And let me tell you why, and that's what we're going to look at with this. It doesn't tell us who the baby is. It doesn't tell us why he came. It doesn't tell us why the shepherds worshipped. What it does is it reduces the gospel to go out and be nice to people and, and speak the right words. Jesus, Luke also, by the way, but Jesus was not just concerned about the poor. He didn't stand there and go, I am for the poor and the marginalized. He became poor. And that's what we're going to look at next week. But this is the most extraordinary thing about that. The birth of Jesus was not just one example of many extraordinary things that are happening in extraordinary places for two reasons. First of all, the birth of Jesus looked remarkably ordinary. He was just born to a normal couple as far as everyone saw. There's nothing extraordinary about the birth of Jesus at one level. We'll throw in the star and the shepherds and everything else later on. But he was born to an ordinary woman. There was nothing outwardly, I think, really extraordinary about this birth, except what came along with it. And I do think that when you look at the the, the bits uh, that are extraordinary, the accounts that are, are given, then it makes a whole lot more sense. One of the problems that we've done is we've reduced the story of Jesus to a kind of myth, a kind of... You know, at Christmas, you get certain Christmas films. It always used to be Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Apparently not anymore, which is a shame, because I love that film. Um, but, uh, or, you know, the Die Hard films are apparently Christmas films now. I have no idea why, but they, they are apparently Christmas films, or Lord of the Rings, or whatever. But the story of Jesus gets treated in that way as well, as some kind of children's story that teaches us to be kind to people. And that's pretty well it. But all the extraordinary things that happened, like the angels coming, like the the persecution of Herod and the slaughtering of the babies in Bethlehem and the wise men coming, these are all indicators that point us to a different story, a story, if you like, that's under the story. So that's what we're, we're going to look at. And from 
verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. So let's think about it in this way. When did Jesus come? When the time had fully come. Luke chapter 2 says this, right at the very beginning. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. By the way, somebody wrote me this week and said, nowhere in the gospel does it claim that they were eyewitnesses. There it is, right at the beginning of Luke. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and the I here is Luke, and he's a doctor, and as all doctors in this congregation know, doctors are very intelligent, and they know how to investigate things. So Luke, investigate everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abiah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. And then in the next chapter, in chapter 2, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, What is important about this is it grounds the story of Jesus in a particular time, a historical time. Names are given, places are given, in effect, dates are given, and historians can do what Luke did to go and check and give an orderly account. This is not a Santa story. This is not a fairy story. This is not a mythological story. Jesus came at a particular time. Now you can work it out once you work out where the censuses were and so on. Why did he come then around 2,000 years ago? Some people would ask, why didn't he come earlier? Well, we're told here that this was the set time. Paul had been talking about how God had put his people under the law and they were there they were heirs of God but they were under the law until such time as the time set by his father he talks about someone being subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father and then in verse 4 he says when the time had fully come God sent his son this was the time set by the father it was the time God had determined and that actually should be enough for us it's not wrong to ask why But we don't really know the answer. We can speculate on different things. So, for example, the Greek language had spread throughout the world. Much like the English language today is the language often of computing and of business and of of tourism and travel. In almost every country in the world now, if you want to get on, you learn the English language. If you want to get on in business. Well, the Greek language was the language of the day, and it had spread throughout uh, the Mediterranean world. There might even have been Scots who spoke Greek at that time. And uh, that could be one reason. Another could be that there were synagogues in every major city, and the gospel was spread first through the Jews. 
even Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, he would go first of all, his methodology was to go first to the synagogue, proclaim the gospel to the Jews. Some Jews would be converted, most would reject, but they would form the basis of um, the new churches in all these cities. And churches sprang up in all these cities very, very quickly, all over um, the Roman Empire at that time. And I think a third factor was the Roman Empire, because there was the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, and there was uh, the Roman roads, which enabled Paul and others to travel for those days fairly quickly. So you can find lots of good reasons, but the, the main reason is just simply this, that in the, in the providence of God and in the sovereignty of God, this was just the right time. And you can see how that was as well in this, that there were thousands of religions at this time, and not one of them, apart from Judaism, is still there. Christianity has grown and developed and continues to grow and develop all over the world. And that's because it was God's timing, it was God's place, it was God's message. So it was the right time, the set time. Incidentally, for those of you who want to be pedantic, uh, it it wasn't December the 25th. Um, And our friend here who sent me this tract uh, was quite right uh, in saying that. But we don't know when Jesus' birthday was. And I'm yet to be convinced that it's wrong to celebrate the incarnation of Christ. I don't think it's... And I I think, by the way, uh, doing it in the middle of winter when this week is the dullest week of the year um, in, in lots of ways... And celebrating the one who was to bring light into the world. I think it's, it's, a, it's a great idea. But that was the time. What happened? What did God do? Well, we're told Paul tells us three things here. First of all, he sent his son. And the word he uses is the, a word that we would use for apostle. Someone who's on a mission. Someone who's got... Uh, a message. And in Hebrews 3.1, we're told that holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. So Jesus was this messenger who came from God. Now in this, that's why the, the leaflet that says, this shows that Luke was concerned for the poor and the marginalized, that's not the point of the text. What the, the, the narratives of the birth of Jesus show us and tell us, and including John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, what these show us is that Jesus is unique in that he existed before he was born. Now, one or two of you here may believe in reincarnation. I'm sorry, you were not Cleopatra in a different life. You just weren't. Um, And in the words of the proclaimers who are here in Dundee, I think this week, um, you're not coming back as a flower either. You're just not. Uh, that teaching is, is, is just wrong. There's no evidence for it whatsoever. You didn't exist in a previous life. But Jesus did. He existed as the Son of God. He was with God in the beginning. He was the Word. He is God's Son. Jesus is something that we never are, and that is He is God. But, says Paul, he was born of a woman. 
Jesus was human. He's a unique baby because he's God, but he's also human. And I think there are several aspects of that just to mention. First, man that is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. That phrase, born of a woman, is not used a lot in the Bible. And that's from Job. Jesus was born into a world of oppression and sorrow, and he himself experienced oppression and sorrow. You'll notice that towards the end of his life, his father's not around. Joseph almost certainly had died while he was um, a young man between 12 and 30. At some point, Joseph had died. Jesus experienced enormous sorrow. And again, that's important for us when we experience sorrow, when we experience pain and suffering and discouragement and depression. We need to remember that he became as we are. It's not just that he became a baby, but he became a baby who cried. It's not no crying he makes. He did cry. Of course he cried. He became a baby, a a child who suffered, and an adult, of course, who suffered enormously. I think this phrase does also include the virgin birth. Um, Paul doesn't specifically mention that. You can't use this as a text for the proof text for the virgin birth, but born of a woman. See, when people say Paul didn't teach about this, who did Paul travel with? He traveled with Luke. What did Luke write? He wrote Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, which teach the virgin birth. So there's no question at all that Paul knew what the teaching was and that Paul accepted that teaching and endorsed it. In fact, he assumed it. He would also know what the Old Testament teachings were as a devout Pharisee. He would know these promises. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The earliest prophecy of Christ. When the time had fully come, This was the time that God had promised from the Garden of Eden. It wasn't, Jesus' birth wasn't a second thought. It was something that God had planned. It was the arrival of the promised seed. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Isaiah 7.14 The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. It's the arrival of the promised sign. So, Jesus coming into the world at just the right time, in the way that he did, born of a woman, born, uh, sent on a mission, born under the law, is the third thing. Now, in a sense, all human beings are under the law, God's law, but only the Jews were under the specific law of Moses. And that's what Paul has been writing about, and he's saying that Jesus came to fulfill that law. Jesus was born a Jew. And he was brought up with the law. And he was brought up with the synagogue. And he had a high regard for the law. But he came to fulfill that law. Now what does that mean? The law was good. But what the law did, it showed us our sin. We couldn't be saved by keeping the law because it was impossible for us to do so. 
Only Christ could. Romans 8 says this, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son. So the law was good, but we were weak and we keep breaking the law. And how many of you here, you you know that. You know that's true. You know you're not supposed to overeat. You're not supposed to get drunk. You're not supposed to be sexually immoral. You're not supposed to cheat. You're not supposed to lie. There are a whole range of different things. And you can determine, you can say, I am not going to do this. I am not going to do anything wrong. The law is good. Do not steal. Do not commit adultery. These commandments are not bad commands. They're good. But because we are bad, we can't fulfill them. And all that they do is show us. They don't make us bad, but they show us the depth of the rottenness in our own hearts. In one sense, we're all addicts. We're all addicted to sin. So he condemns sin. God this by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now that we've we've looked at Romans 8 uh, earlier in the year. But that's a million miles away in terms of depth and meaning and understanding from the Jesus came to show us to be kind to the poor. Jesus came to rescue all of us, rich and poor. He came to die for his people. He came to bring full salvation, not just to be a model and an example, which he is, but much, much more than that. He's the promised law keeper. So that's what happened. What happened is that the Son of God came to earth as a human being, born under the law. He came, but why? Why did it happen? And Paul goes on to say that, and it really is quite incredible. And we take so many of these verses, you know, like verse 26, you're all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's neither Greek, slave, nor free, male, nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. We take these verses, and we take these verses because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. But we take them out of context. And the context, like I, like I think we do Christmas, the context is that Jesus was sent for a purpose. What's the purpose? Let me just mention a few things. First of all, we're told here, he came to redeem those under law. Colossians 2.13 says this, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, you, me, every one of us, we stand before God, and here is God's law, and God's law shows our sin, and our sin is a debt. Forgive us our debt as we forgive our debtors. We have broken God's law. We have gone against God's perfect will. We have destroyed God's creation. And we are condemned, every single one of us. We're condemned by the law. We are condemned. We say we want justice. If you want justice, you're condemned because we are all guilty. But 
Jesus came and it says he took that legal indebtedness, he nailed it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, he says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. It's fascinating for me about Christmas. It's a time when it's okay to be religious. But Jesus came to free us from religion. What does religion do? Religion says, go do this, go do this. Go be nice to the poor. Give an extra few quid to Oxfam. Religion says you need to celebrate this festival and do that. But we're set to be free from that. That's why if you choose not to celebrate Christmas, it's not a sin. You know, you, don't, you, you, just, you, you want to be the Grinch, that's fine. You can go, you've got the freedom uh, to be the Grinch. Just don't be a Grinch with the rest of us. Go and be a Grinch in a mirror uh, and, and to other people. But we're free. We're not bound under law. Christ came to redeem those under the law. The reality is found in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that when you become a Christian, you ignore God's law. It means that you love God's law or the law. But it means that you don't steal, not because you might get caught by the police or you might be condemned to hell, but it means you don't steal because you know that Jesus died for you and you love Jesus and you don't want to do things that are against him. He came to set us free. You're no longer a slave, but you are God's child. The law enslaves it. We have to, enslaves us. We have to obey it. We can't. We're trapped in our sin. Who's going to rescue us from this body of death? Again, in Romans, Paul tells us, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Religion as law enslaves us. And that's why so much of what is preached and taught at Christmas in churches It's not life-giving liberty of the gospel. It actually ends up condemning and condemning and condemning even more. The problem is within us. The problem is who we are, not just so much what we do. Jesus did not come as some kind of political or social guru. Jesus came to free us from the law. And again, the radical results of that are, are seen in so many ways. So that it's not that you don't care about the poor. It's that you recognize that you are the poor. It's that you recognize that the greatest thing that could ever be given to anybody who is poor is the good news of Jesus Christ. Yes, of course, people need to be helped with food and with clothing and so on. But how patronizing is it? To say, look, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some clothes. I'm going to give you a bowl of soup. But I don't want anything to do with you after that. I just want to know that I've been helping the poor and I've done a good thing. And, you know, my kudos is up. My karma's higher. My confused religion's all over the place. But my religion tells me to do it. My society tells me to do it. I will do it. No. What we do when you become a Christian is you, you, you care about the poor because... God does, and because you know that it's right, but you also recognize that the greatest need of everybody is to come to know Jesus Christ. And that's why in Charleston, with the work that we're supporting there, I love the fact that the emphasis of Andrew and all who are involved in that work 
It's to tell the people of Charleston the good news of Jesus Christ, which they need to hear the same as everybody else. And the side effects of that are all the material things that come from it. But we are there to tell people about Jesus. I love, by the way, what uh, Luther says in his commentary on this. Um, Forgive me this, I just love this so much and it's it's a little bit lengthy, but you'll hopefully appreciate it. Paul talks about this, uh, he, he, to redeem those under the law. And Luther says this, it's always good to have this sweet and comfortable sentence before us because it sets out Christ truly and lively. That in our whole life, in all our dangers, in the confession of our faith before tyrants and in the hour of death, we may boldly say, O law, you have no power over me. Therefore, you accuse and condemn me in vain. For I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who the Father sent into the world to redeem us miserable sinners oppressed with the tyranny of the law. He gave his life and shed his blood for me. Therefore, feeling your terrors and threatenings, O law, I plunge my conscience in the wounds, blood, death, resurrection, and victory of Christ. Besides him, I will see nothing. I will hear nothing. See, those of you who are Christians... And and you're quite theologically astute. You believe in justification by faith alone. And yet, why do you still think that Jesus is going to condemn you? Why do you still feel Jesus is your accuser? That he's come to condemn us, to call us to account for our lives. You know, it's that, you know, that, that wee thing, what would Jesus do or what would Jesus think? And you say, I did this, what would Jesus think? Oh, I've let him down, I'm I'm condemned, he's come to condemn me, he's come to condemn me, he's come to condemn me. But he came to free us from the condemnation of the law. No condemnation, now I dread Jesus, and all in him is mine. Then he comes that we might become the children of God. Again, note what he says. Uh, He came that we might receive the full rights of sons, or uh, including uh, sons and daughters. He adopts us into his family. John 1, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. See, again, here's the problem with what I now call the traditional, liberal, Protestant, even Catholic message in the world. And it's this. Their message is, you're all children of God, and Jesus just comes to show you how to do it. But the Bible tells us, you're not children of God. Not in this sense. You need to be adopted. You need that relationship with God. You're actually children of wrath. You're actually under your father, the devil, the father of lies. You need to be rescued. You need to be saved. This adoption, it it is the technical legal word for adoption. But in the Bible, it's not just a new name and a new legal standing and a new family relationship. Imagine that. Imagine that you're a child in an orphanage or in a care home. And you've been longing for an adoption. And uh, I don't know if you've ever read, as a teenager, Tracy Beaker, but uh, that carries that as a really good illustration of those stories. 
But imagine that you're, right now, you're in the care home and you're longing to be adopted. And nobody's come. Nobody wants you. They want the cute little baby. But they don't want you. You're maybe a young teenage girl or a young teenage boy and you've been in care most of your life and they don't want you. And then someone comes along and adopts you and they give you a new name. You have a new legal standing. You have a new family relationship. You have a new home. And that's what this refers to. But it goes deeper. There's also a new image because he talks about how we get the spirit in our lives. Jesus comes that we might receive the spirit. Romans 8:14 For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by him we cry Abba Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. God adopts us. He sends his spirit into our hearts. Because we receive the spirit, we become conscious of our sonship. Into our hearts. He sends his spirit, says Paul, into our hearts. The core and center of our being. Who we really are. You see, your traditional Christian message says, this is what you are. You're fine. Go out and help people. And that's what Christmas is all about. Have a nice time. And help other people to have a nicer time. And the real Christmas message is much grittier and much, much deeper. And it says your heart needs to be changed. You need to be changed fundamentally at a core level. Right in the very center of your being. But this is why Jesus came. He came to give his spirit. And you'll notice it is the spirit of his son. It says here, the spirit The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father, but the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of the Son. He proceeds from both the Son and the Father. And again, it's a huge, huge mystery for many, many people. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Trinity, work together in our salvation. When you read through the Gospels, you'll read that the Spirit was upon Christ in all his fullness. And what we're told is that we receive God's Holy Spirit. Jesus comes to redeem those under the law. He comes that we might become the children of God. He comes that we might receive the Spirit. And then lastly, he comes to give us a great inheritance. Because you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Peter puts it this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I wonder if you have an inheritance actually. You know, um, do you have your parents passed over their house to you or they said you're going to get it? Are there different aspects of inheritance that you have? You know, 
Um, when I move on, someone says, you can have my grandfather clock. That's fine. That's a nice piece of inheritance to have. Or I can say to someone, you can have my books. You can have this photo, the photo that you always hated, but you can have it. That's your inheritance. Whatever it is, there are different things that we can say that's our inheritance, but our inheritance can always perish, spoil, and fade. The value of houses can fall as well as rise. That stock market portfolio can quickly disappear. Those valued possessions can be stolen. Everything that you or I have that we regard as our inheritance, no matter how we try to protect it, can be taken away. But this inheritance, this from God, this because of Jesus, can never be taken away. It can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. God made us an heir. We didn't make ourselves. He made us. He adopted us into his family. Consider what God has done. Can you see now why the message of works is such a weak message? And even though people call it the message of grace, what's often heard... And what you will hear mostly on religious services on the radio, you, you, you'll just hear banality. But even if it's colorful banality, ultimately it's just works. It's just go out and do this. Go out and be nice. Go out and change yourself. Go out, help others, do your wee bit. And the trouble is that loads your heart with guilt, with self-righteousness and pride. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like others. Thank you that I'm not like these people or those people. But I really am for the marginalized and the poor. Please don't be so self-righteous. It doesn't give you joy and it doesn't enable you to cry out, Abba, Father. When you know God as your Father, when you know who Jesus is, when you know why that baby came, when you understand why the angels announced his coming, when you grasp why the early Jewish disciples like Paul could say, the time had fully come, we've been waiting for this for centuries, and then the time fully came, and it came in Jesus. And it came in such an astonishing way, a way that we would have looked at when we saw a man on a cross and said he's cursed by God, and instead we realized that we were blessed by God because he was cursed by God. When you, when you grasp that, then you don't do the miserly thing. You rejoice at the incarnation. You rejoice at the Son of God becoming a human being. And you don't trivialize it and you don't patronize and you don't turn it into some kind of myth or cliche or, or, or meaningless story. Once you grasp it, it's the greatest gift you could possibly ever, ever have. I used to love Christmas as a child because I was looking forward to the presents. And when you're a very little child, the very small presents were fine. In fact, the wrapping paper was probably better than most of the, the, the stuff that you were given. But as you got older, you began to look for more presents. My first scale electrics, and if you don't know what scale electric is, you haven't lived. That was great. First scale electrics, really, really look forward to that. When I knew 
that, um, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Lucas, if, if, you know, if you don't know this, when I knew that Santa was my dad, uh, you know, I would find out what the, I, I knew where they hid them as well. I'd find out where they were. So the first bike as well, that was great. That was wonderful. It was fantastic. And you would feel an excitement about Christmas. And there is a certain magic about it because of all of those things. But I'll tell you this. That's fine. It's fine. I'm not being against any of that. and I'm not saying don't give gifts. Feel free to give as many gifts as you want. But I'm saying this. So many people get caught up in Christmas and get caught up in pressure to give and caught up in... in uh, in guilt, to be honest, and get caught up in family stresses. Because for some of us, Christmas is a lovely family time, and then for most of you, it's a family time, and you go, oh, I'm so glad when it's over, because there's so much stress and so much strain and so much tension. And I think if you really, really want to celebrate Christmas po- properly, reflect upon what we are taught here, that this time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, Try and get rid of the tinsel, maybe not literally, but you know what I mean, all the glitz and stuff around, and actually get to the real heart of it. And if you're not a Christian, can I just simply say that more than anything else, I hope and pray that this Christmas you will come to know who Jesus is and to receive the greatest gift, which is himself. And along with that is eternal life and the Holy Spirit and the peace and joy in believing. I'm going to finish um, with the prayer from Ephesians 3, verses 16 to 17. And my prayer for each one of us is that we would hear this prayer and we would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Let me pray. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that's beyond knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Let's finish by singing, Hark the glad sound, the Savior comes. The Savior promised long, let every heart prepare a throne and every voice a song. We're going to sing this and then after we've sung it, please remain standing for the benediction and uh, tea and coffee will be served uh, after that. So please again, do feel free to stay for those. Let's stand and sing, Hark the glad sound.